things of this world that are passing away. In the Gospel of John, so if you would, please get a Bible and open it up to John chapter 13. Beginning in, we're going to be beginning in verse 18 today. And uh, I don't know if it's still the case, but there are two names historically in the Judeo-Christian world, so to speak, usually Europe and America. There's two names that we don't name our children. One's from the Old Testament, one's from the New. The Old Testament one is Jezebel. We don't name our kids that. The other one is from the New Testament. Judas. We don't name our kids that. Why? Because they represent some of the worst human acts in the, hum- in the history of humanity. And we'd rather our kids be known for something better. But these names are in the Bible nonetheless. And this morning we're not going to be looking at Jezebel. Maybe we'll do that some future point. But today we are going to be looking at the name, the life, of Judas. But, as I study this passage, one of the things that can easily happen when we look at someone as wicked as is born out here is we can miss the bigger picture. Actually, in our own lives, when we get hurt by someone, when we're betrayed by someone, we can miss the bigger picture. See, when evil things happen, when we see the worst in humanity, we lose confidence. Now sometimes losing confidence is good because sometimes we have confidence in the wrong things. Sometimes we have too high a view of humanity and we need to be brought down a few pegs. Too high a view of ourselves and we need to be brought down a few pegs. But sometimes losing confidence is not good because we miss the reality that the Son of God came into that wicked mess and he rules over it. So, question for you guys. Does anyone today want greater confidence in Jesus Christ? Does anybody feel a need for that when you look out in the world? When you look at your own failings? When you look at the failures of others upon you? I certainly do. So let's open this up in verses, in beginning in chapter 13, verse 18. Would you stand with me as we read all the way down to verse 30? Jesus is talking to his disciples after having washed their feet and commanding them to do, uh, do likewise. He says in verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at each other, at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. 
So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus, Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. You have a seat. Why is this passage in the Bible? Why do we see the betrayal of Jesus? Why do we see the, the fall of a disciple? We have this in our Bibles because we should have confidence that Jesus is the Son of God. If this wasn't in the Bible, the disciples here and us would be scrambling to try to explain how the Son of God didn't see the betrayal coming and how he ended up getting himself crucified. We can have confidence that Jesus is the, that Jesus is the Son of God. So how does this passage do that? How is this passage meant to instill confidence in us? How can we have confidence in him? Well, first we see that Jesus fulfills his word. I am not speaking all of all of you, he said in verse 18. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate his bread has lifted he who he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So how does Jesus fulfill his word? Well, first, Jesus chooses. He chooses his disciples. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. See, Jesus has just finished teaching his disciples, that they are to sacrificially serve one another. And in his argument, in verse 16, he uses two terms to describe them. He uses the word servant, and he uses the word messenger. You see, this is what he has in mind all along for these disciples, that they would become those who are servants and messengers. And these, in particular, would become what we know today as apostles, sent ones. And we who believe because of the message of the gospel entrusted to them, we too are chosen, both for salvation and for service. Not because of anything good or bad in us. Jesus called these guys by name, and it says nothing about what they did before other than the fact that they were fishermen. Some, one was a religious zealot or political zealot. One was a tax collector a traitor to the Jewish people. But it wasn't because of those things that Jesus chose them, but because God chose to show mercy, and he has chosen to show us mercy who believe in him.
And I didn't hear enough people suck in their breath the wonder of that. That God should show any of us mercy should knock our socks off. Isn't this amazing? I know whom I have chosen. And if you trust him, he has chosen you and he knows you. I know whom I have chosen. But he does say, I am not speaking of all of you. Here's the question then. If Jesus was choosing his disciples for this, did he make a fatal error in choosing Judas? Did he, in his zeal to get the will of God done, just pick the wrong guy at the last minute? No. No, John 6, verse 64 says that Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who would betray him. So why then does he choose this guy? Well, he says in verse 18, going on, it says, but the scripture will be fulfilled. We should have confidence in Jesus as the Son of God because he makes sure that his scripture is fulfilled. All of it, even the painful parts. Even this painful word from Psalm 41 given hundreds of years before when King David faced a betrayal similar. Listen to this. The scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now there's some stuff culturally that we don't understand, but there's some stuff that we do get. Who do you share your meals with? Enemies, mostly? Or friends? Family. You see, this wasn't just some disgruntled Jewish citizen who Jesus didn't know from Adam who was going to get him. This was a trusted friend. This was a person who was brought into his inner circle. This was, and this is important, this was someone who was welcome to eat with Jesus had done so, and then committed the most extraordinarily shameful thing to do to a host of the meal, which is to lift his heel like a defensive horse and kick him in the face. But why does Jesus say that happens? Because Jesus is not in control? No, because the word of God will be fulfilled. And Jesus says, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So what does that mean? It means, thirdly, that he lets his disciples know beforehand. That's how we can trust him to fulfill his word. He lets his disciples know beforehand. Jesus not only fulfills the written scripture at the time, he also fulfills his prophetic word, which is the word of God, to his disciples. And they were going to need it. If our faith rested upon a Savior whom nothing bad ever happened to, and then something bad happened to him, and we had no reason or no forewarning as to why, you know what would happen? Our faith would be shattered. 
Because we need a God who not only endures through great times, we need a God who endures the worst and who's in control of the worst. And we have him. His name is Jesus. And Jesus keeps his words because the disciples saw him betrayed by a close friend. They saw him die on the cross, which is what that betrayal led to. They saw him rise again and that Jesus said these things, he says before they take place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Who's he? The son of God, the great I am, who perfectly represents God the Father to us. that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, just as he said, and that this whole book points to. And with that message, fourthly, he sends his disciples. That's how we can trust him to fulfill his word as well. Because he says that you may believe that I am he, and then he goes in verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. I mean, it's pretty straightforward, but Jesus' word is fulfilled as he sends his disciples and as they are received. Because you remember where this is in Jesus' life, right? Jesus is getting ready to leave. It's probably one of the worst ways to leave the world, being crucified. But he's getting ready to leave, and not just leave being crucified, he rises and is taken up to heaven. And he's training his disciples in this passage, even as he's being betrayed and talking about betrayal. He's training them to carry his word, to carry his gospel to the world. And he says that if anyone receives them, they receive Jesus. And if they receive Jesus, they receive God the Father, just as Jesus has been saying over and over. And that's what we, as the church, believe. The New Testament, written almost 2,000 years ago, entire, almost entirely by the apostles, is rightly to be considered the word of God, because Jesus entrusted it to them. And that's why we study this book. We study what the apostles have written, and in them we see the true character of Jesus. We see Jesus. And in seeing Jesus, in receiving him, in believing what he says about himself, and believing him as the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus says we not only receive him, we receive God the Father. Jesus fulfills his word. And if you look out on the world today, it doesn't show up in headlines often, major ones anyway. This receiving what the apostles were entrusted and receiving them and receiving Jesus and receiving God the Father is going on over and over and over and more and more and more and more people in this day and age are coming to faith in Christ than tons of centuries before. We should have confidence that Jesus is the Son of God. And after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of the other ways that we can have confidence in Jesus being the Son of God is that Jesus 
controls even the betrayal. How do we know that? How is he in control here? Well, first, he knows how bad it really is. Because the Son of God doesn't get troubled easily, but if he knows how bad it really is, he's right to be troubled. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Think about this. Linda mentioned this a little bit. Three years. Day in, day out. Three years of love, investment, and care from God incarnate. Three years of Jesus knowing that the betrayer had heard the teaching and had seen the miracles. And in fact, the betrayer had even been given authority at one point to do some of those miracles. He was among those who were sent out two by two. And three years of building trust with other disciples who didn't yet understand how their teacher and their Lord would fall at the hands of this traitor. So what should God's response be? What should our response be? Yes, troubled in our spirit. Jesus should be troubled in the spirit at the very thought of a close friend stabbing a friend in the back, much less the Son of God. He knows how bad it really is. The disciples don't, so they need to find out. And what's really fascinating about this passage is that Jesus is also in control by how he sets the table. It says in verse 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now at this meal, Jesus is the host. And in normal meals in Jewish culture, they would sit at a table and they would eat. But at Passover, they would sit at a rather unique table. You want to bring up that picture? It's a kind of a U-shaped table or an we're in Nebraska, an N-shaped table called a triclinium. And the arrows up there are disciples. And they are leaning obliquely, often on their left side, up to the table where there was food prepared, and they would eat with their right hands. So if you see, and I confess, maybe I don't have it right, but I'm pretty sure I got it right. Right at the top of the center, where the cross is, That's Jesus. And on his right is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And that's a term of humility, by the way. It's not 
person boasting. He's, he's amazed that Jesus loves him, as we should be. But then, on his left, in a seat of honor, is Judas. Jesus shows that he's in control by the way, very way he sets the table. He shows honor and favor to Judas. And then what does it say? Jesus answers the question, Lord, who is it? It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Do you know what that is in Middle Eastern culture? That's a further sign of extending grace and honor. Because the host doesn't have to feed anybody. But he chooses to dip it in there and give it to him. Why? Why? Why does he do that? Do you remember the character of our Lord? Jesus said himself, I did not come for judgment, but I came to save. He is a God who loves even the traitor. And he is showing him grace, making appeal after appeal to Judas all the way up to the end to repent of his wickedness. Yes, the scripture does have to be fulfilled, but Judas is also responsible. Because what, what this is a picture of is the morsel given is at the same time an act of blessing, and depending on how it is received, it can also be the worst judgment. It's exactly a picture of the cross. If you look at the cross, you look to Jesus and you believe him, the cross is our hope. The cross is our salvation. The cross is where our sins, our awful sins, are taken away and we're made children of God. But if we reject Jesus, if we reject what he has done on the cross, the cross becomes that which is held up against us as judgment. And that's also how, kind of in, this is just a little note, of how John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, can lean back against Jesus and ask, Lord, who is it? It seems, at least from the text, it's not totally clear, that John was the only one who heard the answer. Peter was obviously looking, because <laughs> who is it? But Jesus doesn't make it public. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to identify him as the traitor. And thirdly, to display his control Jesus governs the cost of unbelief. Because look what happens. Verse 27. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. 
how does a person get here? How does a person get to receiving acts of kindness from Jesus and then being possessed? This is what's happening. This is demon possession. Being possessed by the prince of the power of the air. How does this happen? Again, it's the very same act of grace. Romans 2 verse 4 says, The kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. But if we reject it, the very act of grace becomes the thing that opens us up to the worst thing in the world. Because as we reject and persist in rejecting the grace of God, we become hollowed out shells of people. And hollowed out shells of people are perfect residences for the demonic. And in this case, Satan had a vested interest in ensuring and working to try to destroy the Son of God. So at the opportunity when Jesus, when Judas gave lip service, so to speak, when he took the grace given to him in the morsel, without trusting Jesus at all, Satan saw his chance and he went in. So it could either be Judas or it could be Satan that Jesus responds to when he says, Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. This is actually Jesus in control. Jesus, in the moment when Satan enters the betrayer, has the authority to tell Satan and the betrayer when and how to do things. It doesn't happen slow. If you're going to, what you are going to do, what you've already intended to do, do quickly. And then it goes on to say this. It says, now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. God bless the disciples. They are like us. Sometimes we don't know why things go on. We don't know why things happen. But we can trust that Jesus does. Because Simon, Judas the son of Simon Iscariot, fooled everybody for three years or more, except Jesus. And that should serve as a good warning for us, church. Because you can fool everyone in this room. But you can't fool Jesus. If you are in unrepentant sin, you can't fool Jesus. You can give all the lip service and all the good deeds you want. You can have possession of the money bag. You can even be giving stuff to the poor.
and still not be Jesus' disciple. Truly. Now Judas is one unique individual. That kind of, that, it, this event is never repeated. But we are warned later in Scripture that this kind of thing, things like it, can happen again. Listen to John speaking to the church again. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 19, he says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. You see, the church can be described two ways, visible and invisible. Visibly, we see people coming into into a gathering. We see people reading the word. We see people. We hear people praying. But ultimately, and we can look at people's fruit in their lives. Is it the fruit of the Holy Spirit? But ultimately, we cannot see into the human heart like God can. So the visible church is made up by genuine believers, by non-believers, and by non-believers pretending to be believers. But the invisible church is the one that Jesus sees. And it is his people through and through. And so what this passage should encourage us is that because Jesus is in control, we should trust him. We should look to him. We should believe him. We should have confidence that he is the son of God. Because if we don't, After receiving the morsel of bread, verse 30, Judas immediately went out, and it was night. Now, John doesn't just tell us that because that's the time of day it is. Jesus has been saying, and John has been telling us throughout this entire gospel, that the light of the world has come, and the darkness has not overtaken it. And Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So, after grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, what happens? Judas says, no. The last time. And he walks away from the light. And he goes out into the darkness. If you have breath today, There's a chance for you to repent. There's a chance for you to trust the Lord Jesus, to have confidence in Him, not in the money bag, not in the good deeds, but in Jesus. We're going to come today to the communion table. (laughs) 
I had kind of wished and desired that the last time we would have celebrated communion, which was talking about foot washing, that we would have done communion then. But God's providence, it seems that it is here. Here when we see both the worst of humanity and the love and kindness of Jesus that should instill in us great confidence in him. We may not know everything, but Jesus does. And we can trust him. And the scripture does say that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said to his disciples, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What's Jesus doing there? He's doing the same thing that he gave, did for Judas. He's showing grace. He's showing love. He's showing mercy. This is my body which is broken for you. Receive it. Believe it. Then after supper, it says, in the same way he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is given for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. So, as we do this as a church family, because this is a family meal, we come to this table together as a family. Here's the deal. If you're not part of the family, you're welcome to be part of the family today to trust the Lord Jesus. Because the body and blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover the sins of the world, but it, can only, it is only appropriated, it is only received by those who will receive it. So if you want to keep your hand out like this, don't come to this table. Because coming to this table, Paul says, if you come to it in an unworthy manner, you heap judgment on yourself. And we don't want that for you. You have enough judgment. You need to trust Jesus to take away the judgment that you already have. But if you have trusted Jesus... This is for us to remember. This is for us to be reminded that we can have confidence in Jesus, the Son of God. A Son of God who did not stay away, but a Son of God who came. Not because we did anything great, but because he loved us and showed us mercy. So as we come... Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus. Lord, we are conflicted because on the one hand we see that Judas did awful evil against you and we acknowledge it that it was evil. 
but also in that moment of evil you displayed that you are still God, you are still in control, you are still holy, you are still merciful and gracious, a God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and sin. But as your word also says, but who will by no means clear the guilty? So Lord, we ask for your help. Renew our minds that we would behold you as you are, that we would see sin for what it is. It's worthlessness. And we would see you as you are. You are wholly worthy of all that we are, all that we can say, do, everything, Lord. And so I pray for myself and I pray for my brothers and sisters here today that you would grant us to come to this meal in thanksgiving with joy, with remembrance that it was through awful things that you purchased us and made us a people for yourself. And that in you, because of your, bro- your body broken for us and your blood shed for us, we can have life. Life forever. Please help us to receive your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.